Welcome back to another episode of Professionals Podcasting. In this episode, attorney Meredith Bott covers five common estate planning scenarios. Scenario one, I'm a single mother. I've named my children as my beneficiaries of my will, but I've also named my children and my parents as beneficiaries of my life insurance. Who would receive the money if I die? That is a great question. Very common question too, because people are kind of um, confused as to whether a will or even a trust would supersede any beneficiaries that you might have on your life insurance or retirement accounts or even a, a bank account for that matter. Um, so the the easy answer is the beneficiaries prevail as opposed to the will and trust. Okay. So what you have to remember is a beneficiary designation on any life insurance or IRAs is a contract between you and your financial institution or insurance company. So they have to honor that contract and that's exactly how it would be distributed. A will or a trust is separate from that. So it's not a contract, it's something you created separately, but they don't necessarily communicate unless you force the communication. So what I mean by that is when we create a trust for someone, I generally say, add the trust as a beneficiary not your children, especially with this, um, with your situation where you have young children. Um, once you put your children on as beneficiaries, and let's just say they're 15 and, and 10 and you pass away, now that money is going to be held on by the insurance company until they're 18. And then at 18, they turn over that money. And a lot of times, Parents don't want to give that money to their kids that quickly, right? 18 is a is a very, um, I think, tenuous age to be giving somebody a lot of money. It might ruin their chances for college or just having ambition to pursue a career. Um, so what I suggest then is tell the client, so you have, say you create a trust, we would put the trust as the beneficiary, not them individually. So that way you could put as many instructions as you want in the trust to say, okay, you're getting this money. You can use it for education, for maybe some rent, for, for living expenses, but then you're going to have to wait till 25 or maybe 30 or, you know, a third at 25, a third at 30, the balance at 35, some kind of instructions that lays out your wishes so that the money doesn't get to them too soon, too fast. Okay. So at the end of the day, we have to really be careful about who is on your beneficiaries, um, your forms, that who you fill out um, through work or, or at home, certainly. So it's important to, to make sure that uh, we put exactly what you want, so that both of those things kind of work together as opposed to being separate and, and not have your full wishes on there. So I just highly recommend going through an attorney and doing a, a will or a trust or both. Scenario two. My brother died and only left a condo in his bank account. Do we need to go to court to sell his condo yeah, and get the money from his bank account? Scenario quite often as well. Um, a lot of times, yeah, when a person has passed, it sounds like oh, your brother died. It's not unusual to, to kind of worry about the house because that's usually in the decedent's name. And then they're checking your savings account. Um, what I'll usually ask when we're having a conversation is, okay, what other accounts are there and how much um, how much is the house worth, all of those things. Because theoretically in Illinois, if you have only $100,000 or less in your estate, then you don't have to go to probate. But that's theoretical. So most people, if you have real estate, the title company won't allow you to sell the property without going through probate. 
Okay. So whether it's a condo that's $100,000 or a house that's worth half a million dollars, it doesn't matter. Likelihood you'll open probate. However, um, there's a possibility that the title company, so you go and you put your, the house on the market, and now we have a contract. Now we have to order title to find out whether, you know, we go through a title company and we got to make sure that the chain of title is correct, that the decedent owned the property. One of the things that we can do to avoid probate is what is called a deed in lieu of probate. And basically what it means is that we're going to put on the deed the estate of John Doe and the people who are going to sign it are the beneficiaries of the estate. So it really depends on who those beneficiaries are. So if there's no will and um, maybe it's you as a sibling and then another sibling. So it's just two of you are the only surviving heirs because your brother didn't have children or didn't have um, a spouse. Then um, we go through the title company. The title company actually will be the one that's going to insure over not opening up a probate estate. And they will only do that if they have what is called an affidavit of heirship. So you, as a sibling of your brother, can say, yes, my brother died. Yes, me and my sister are the only other heirs at law. Sign away. Then you file that with the title company, and then they will be able to accept a deed that you sign without having to go through probate court just for you to be authorized to sign. Okay, so it sounds like, yeah, that's easier, faster, all of that. There is a price tag to it. Um, the price tag is the title company will require an additional insurance kind of um, called a, an, just basically another in, an additional um, title insurance cost is going to be based on the value of the property. So it's usually about a 2% of the value of the property. So if it's a $200,000 property, you're going to pay $4,000 to the title company when you sell the house um, in order for them to take on that risk, okay? So the question originally was, do you have to go to court to sell the condo? Not really if we can do this, this deed in lieu of probate and work with the title company. Not all title companies do it, so we have to just check. And then with the bank account, if it's under $100,000, most banks will accept what is called a small estate affidavit, and we can help you with that, and hopefully they'll accept it so you can get access to that account. Scenario three. My father recently passed and had an old will distributing his estate equally between my sister and me. Before he passed, he was working with an attorney to change the will to give me his house, but the will was never signed. Could we still use this will to distribute the estate? I hate that. It happens all the time where it's like, yes, they were about to sign it and they didn't. Uh, so um, can you use the the new will as the one that's going to manage or distribute the estate? And the answer is no, right? The, unfortunately, like legal signatures matter. And even if the intent was there, you worked with a lawyer, you drafted this, the sad thing is, no matter how much effort you went through with it, it's not binding without that signature. Can they, can the family maybe have a conversation about it and say, you know what, dad really wanted the house to go to me. Can we honor it despite the will not being signed? Yes. Families can certainly take it upon themselves and say, okay, we really believe dad wanted to give you the house. We believe that you know, he, he would have signed this anyway. So what I would always suggest is let's, um, 
put it in writing that all of you agreed on it and say that it's called a family settlement agreement. So we put the terms of what you're agreeing on and saying, even though the will wasn't signed, we're going to agree that you're going to get the house based on this will. And then everybody signs it and then you can distribute that way. But if there's other family members that are like, mm -hmm, I want a share of that house, I'm entitled to it. They have the right to do so. So people would have to be agreeable to that, that solution. Scenario four, I'm concerned about being sued. Will my trust provide me with liability protection? Yeah, you know, when people hear the word trust, they assume liability protection. They assume, oh, no one can take my money because it's in a trust. And I have to be the bearer of bad news to say living trust or revocable trusts are not protected from liabilities. Why? Because you have full access to that money. You have full control over that money. So the way we, the way the, the court system looks at it, the law looks at it, as long as you have full control over it, it's your money, just like as if you would have owned it on your own as opposed to via a trust, okay? So how do you protect your assets? There's a lot of other ways. Um, there's a lot of layers of asset. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do asset protection. Um, one is just by law, there's certain assets that are protected from lawsuits. They are in Illinois, retirement accounts. So your 401k, your IRA, your 403b, your 457, your simple plan, all those things are protected by law. Number two is life insurance. So you might have some policies that are permanent policies that you have cash value attached to it. That's fully protected. No one can take that away from you. That's a good thing. Um, and then everything else, unfortunately, is available or, or exposed. So what do we do with everything else? Well, um, some people choose to create irrevocable trusts. Um, there's other types of trusts that are irrevocable where you could put money in it, but somebody else has to manage it. So you relinquish control over those assets. Whole host of irrevocable trusts, it would depend on the client to decide which one would be even uh, a good fit. Um, other options are certainly um, putting them in an LLC, a limited liability company. That's another way that um, just more higher net worth individuals can put their their vacation home in there or some assets or cash in there, and it would be protected from lawsuits. So in that scenario, it's certainly um, cost versus benefit, whether the the benefit of the asset protection is worth the, the, the cost to you. So liability protection does not happen when it comes to living trusts. Highly, highly recommend that you come and talk to us so we can see what other, what other options there are available to you if that's a concern. Scenario five, my aunt with dementia was recently hospitalized. She has no children or next of kin. My siblings and I want to help her, but the nurses at the facility say we're not authorized. How can we help her? Okay, so she's hospitalized and then she has early stages of dementia. That's when you, you have a very small window of time at that point to see if, um, if we can get her to sign documents. Okay, so obviously if she is fully there and she can say, okay, my niece can help me, so um, she's authorizing you at the hospital. However, that only works for that period of time. So if she's in another hospital or she's talking to her regular doctor, that won't be allowed unless you have some authority through a power of attorney for health care. So I would highly, highly recommend that we check to see if she's able to find documents. Um, the test is, does she have the capacity to understand 
what she's signing and who she's giving authority to. Does she have to know everything about life, her life right this moment and remember everything? No, as long as I talk to her and I say, okay, we're going to have your niece act for your behalf. Are you okay with that? Yes, I want my niece to take care of me. Like I just kind of interview her to see if she has that capacity. So that's one way is to sign healthcare powers of attorney or property powers of attorney. That's the easier way. If she was in a coma or she's in the later stage of dementia, that situation is a lot more difficult. So we have to open up what is called a guardianship or a conservatorship. And that requires courts, judges, money, you know. So certainly there's a lot of, of complexity when it has, happens. But it does happen a lot with uh, for people like this where your aunt is single, no kids. Then the family has to go through this process to try to get, you know, the authorization to take care of her. So I'd rather not go the second route. But if it worse comes to worse and we have to, then you go to court, you get authorized to, to be the person. It's about a, I would say, two-month process to get that. Um, and obviously, it costs some time and some money. You have to physically go to the court. Um, but once you're authorized, now you take care of your aunt. You talk to all her doctors. You can pay her bills. You can do everything you can for your aunt. But the goal is to pre-plan, like to, to have, once you notice some of your family members kind of, maybe um, not being fully there a lot or they're, they're having those early stages of dementia, I highly, highly, highly recommend you say, hey, aunt, I need, I think you should go see a lawyer. Let's go take you, let's let's get you, um, get somebody to take care of your finances and your medical decisions so that you can do that instead of going through the court system. That's great. Yeah. So I think if you yeah. just here with like a quick conclusion call. Yeah. yeah. So that um so those are all really great questions. And, and you can see the the general um uh notion of all the questions is really plan, plan ahead so that we can do all the estate planning and write down your wishes, um, avoid guardianship, avoid probate if you die and now we don't have to go to court. Um and we also give it to the people you want it to give it to, right? Why should it go to some random relative that you never even liked in the first place or, you know, to people you don't even talk to? Maybe you're estranged with them. So important to plan. Write down your, your wishes, have that peace of mind, and then, and then you don't have to just worry about that part. You can just live a fuller life. That is it. Well, thank you so much for watching this, uh, this podcast or, or listening to it. Um, we appreciate it, and we'll see you next time.